0: So, let's get back into Leviticus. We are in chapter 6 this week. We're going to do two chapters this week, because 6 and 7 are one unit. We talked about last week how chapter 6, verse 1 in our Bibles is actually the end of chapter 5 in the Hebrew Bible. Chapter 6, verse 8 in our Bibles is chapter 6, verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. So, we're starting out in chapter 6 according to a Jewish or Hebrew reading of it. But it makes sense thematically because now what we move into. So, re- recap. Leviticus has begun right on the heels of Exodus. Exodus ended with fire coming, the, the, the glory cloud coming down from heaven into this newly constructed tabernacle. And God filling it with his presence. And then Leviticus picks right up the very first word of the text is a conjunction. And God said... God picks right up, giving Moses and the people directions on how to use this thing that they're standing in front of. This new thing called the tabernacle, which is just a fancy word for tent or dwelling place. God has pitched his tent among his people, but God's tent is given in a specific pattern that corresponds to the heavenly pattern that God showed Moses when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai back in Exodus. So God's tent on earth is going to be a replica of not just Mount Sinai in its holiness, its uh, variations of holiness leading from bottom to top, but also it's a replication or it's a symbolic um, encapsulation of all of creation and in particular of the Garden of Eden. The imagery throughout the tabernacle is filled with Eden references. Everything from the curtain separating the Holy of Holies that has cherubim woven into it, which harkens back to the cherubim God placed outside of Eden to bar the way for sinful humanity, to the tree that's in front of the tabernacle, which is the menorah, the lampstand. Um, the imagery is, in the entrance is on the east. It's got four sides. Uh, both of those things are descriptive of Eden. And God calls the priests, the Levitical priests, he caused them to work and to take care of the tabernacle. Those are the exact words that the Hebrew text told, God told Adam when he placed him in the garden, to work and take care of the garden. Or some translations say to guard and to keep the garden. That's what the priests are charged with doing, guarding and keeping the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle, God's tent, is not like any other tent where you just go in at will or, or anyone can just approach. God's tent is a buffer zone. It, 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 it's meant to house in a local temporal way. It's meant to house the glory of God in a way that doesn't consume the sinful people that he has chosen to dwell among. This is the tension in scripture theologically. God desires to be imminent, yet he's transcendent. How can a transcendent God be imminent if, unless he chooses to allow himself to come down and manifest in a certain particular place, point in time with his people? The other problem is God is holy. According to everything in scripture that we know, God is holy and holiness is not like somebody who doesn't dance and doesn't go to R.A. movies and doesn't ever curse when they stomp the toe or anything like that. That's not holiness. Holiness, think about, the hottest blast furnace you've ever encountered. That's holiness, the hottest fire you've ever seen. That's holiness. And holiness consumes that which is common, that which is impure. This is a reason that, that, that the, uh, the notion of, of metallurgy, uh, the, or the image of metallurgy is used in describing holiness. You know, things talk about God as like a refining fire. What's that image mean? Well, if you have a lump of mixed, mineral, some of it's good gold or silver or whatever, and some of it's dross, just other less desirable elements, impurities. You put it in the fire. The fire burns away the impurities so that what remains is the precious. That is the holiness of God, and that's an image that both Testaments use to depict God's holiness. Fire is the most common image that's used in Scripture of God's indwelling and imminent holiness what came down on the apostles at pentecost tongues of fire fire is this symbol because it's a powerful symbol it refines it purifies it destroys it doesn't tolerate any uh any radiation it is it, it, it's something's either on fire or it's not on fire and that's how holiness works in scripture and so we see all of this in this system of sacrifices that we've read about for the past five weeks all of these sacrifices, all of these offerings, communicate visually a deep theological facet of who God is and what his people are to be in this world that he caused them to be. His covenant people of Israel. Now remember, we're reading Leviticus. We're not reading how God wants his new covenant people to be in our world. We're reading how God wanted his Levitical, Sinai Covenant people to be in their world. Because a whole lot of things are gonna happen between them and us. And some of them are gonna be radically theologically significant, and will have to be taken into account. So the biggest mistake that devout Christians make when they read Leviticus is they go back and read it, and they try to just apply it today. And you can't do that. It was never meant to be applied that way, and the New Testament goes out of its way to declare that that's not how we use Leviticus today. Now we still use Leviticus, we still appeal to Leviticus, we still see the the moral will of God for his people everywhere in Leviticus, but we see it as it's foundationally given that undergirds the laws, not as the laws themselves. That's a subtle, but it's a profound difference that needs to be kept in mind as we're reading through Leviticus. So we presented these offerings, and and the the first five chapters of Leviticus were written, God says, speak to the people of Israel. Tell the people of Israel. In other words, everyone, not just the priest, tell the people of Israel, this is what you're going to do. So the first five chapters are given primarily to or from the point of view of the worshiper, the ones who are bringing the sacrifice. Now chapters 6 and 7 are going to focus primarily, God will say, speak to Aaron and his sons. And it's going to do a recap or a summary. And it's going to be from the perspective primarily of those who are receiving the sacrifices, which is the priests. So the focus is going to shift. And the order of the sacrifices is actually going to be a little bit different. The first order of sacrifices in chapters 1 through 5 were given in terms of the two that were uh, Excuse me, the three that were voluntary, and then the two that were involuntary. The first three sacrifices were you brought at your own discretion for your own reasons, and then the last two were you brought these when you had broken God's commandments, when you had sinned inadvertently, or when you even think you might have sinned inadvertently. So the last two, so that's how they were broken up when they were given to the people. Now in these these two chapters, when they're given to the priest, they're going to actually be given in a descending order of holiness. So the one that's gonna begin is gonna be the most holy, the foundational sacrifice of all of Israel's identity, the one that had to take place every morning and every evening. That's the whole burnt offering. Then radiating out from that are going to be the next three sacrifices that are considered still most holy and they still have to do with the inner workings of the tabernacle, but they're only able to be eaten by the priests, if anyone. And then it'll end with the fellowship of the peace offering, which is the, like we talked about a few weeks ago, Hebrew Thanksgiving. This is the celebration meal. And this is the offering that will be enjoyed by God, priest, and worshiper all together. So that's the order of how the, uh, the sacrifices are dealt with in six and seven. And then they're given details that weren't mentioned in the first overview. Details that are important for the priest to know, such as which parts can the priest keep? Or where should these particular sacrifices be eaten? Because remember, the sacrifices were were food for the priests. And the priests were a whole tribe of people. So this is how the priests, the Levites, they didn't get land. They didn't have cattle or or herds or livestock. That they didn't, and in a society built around pastoral, agrarian concepts like like herding and cattle raising and animal husbandry, to not have any of that meant that the priests were dependent on the rest of the tribes to provide that for them. And in return, the priests were providing the rest of the tribes with the thing that gave meaning to all of their lives, which is their relationship with God. So the idea that there's no distinction between laity and clergy is something I hear some Christians say a lot of times, but it really doesn't fit in either testament because in both testaments, there are examples of God calling out particular people as what we would call clergy. Your primary vocation is going to be to minister to people and you're going to receive your living through the people you minister to, giving back or investing back in you, right? So this is where I'll pass the collection plate. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but that's the concept, it's in both Testaments. It is in the Old and in the New Testament. However, what that can devolve into, and it does in both Testaments, is a priesthood or a clergy class that starts to lord over, starts to think, well, because God has called us to this vocation, we're somehow closer to God or more holy or worth more than what he's called the farmer or the herdsman or the you know whatever to do and so that's how it devolves in both testaments and so god put safeguards in place to, to prevent that as much as possible uh, and jesus talked to him when he talked to his, his apostles and he said don't don't lord things over don't be you know don't rule that way don't lead that way you're to serve you're to lead through serving not through being served and so it's, it's a, it, there's, there's theological significance in that. And it's found underlying a lot of the regulations that are given here. So let's look at it, chapter six, verse eight. The Lord said to Moses, give Aaron and his sons this command. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. And that word regulations may be translated like rituals or something else. That word is actually Torah. These are the Torah, the Torah, the, the teaching. Torah means teaching. And that's what the first whole five books of the Bible are called. It's called the Torah. The teaching. The instruction. These are the instruction for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night till morning. And the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The priest shall then put on his linen clothes with linen undergarments next to his body, and shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar and place them beside the altar. So the ashes, have been burning all night, put on the garments, the linen, the linen garments that he's to serve in, which represent purity and cleanliness, and which also are very comfortable when you're working near fire, because they're cool, and they can breathe, you don't sweat as much. Take the ashes off of the heart, put them beside the altar, that's just basic I mean, if you have a fireplace that's real, not gas power, you've done this. You gotta clean the ashes out after you've burned a few fires. He says, then, he's to take take off these clothes and put on others, so take off priestly linen garments, put on other clothes, common clothes, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. So then he's to take the ashes away, but he's changing his clothes because his clothes are what they were anointed in. These are the priestly garments. They don't leave the tabernacle. They don't leave the holiness of God. So when he is, is acting in that uh, capacity of removing something, putting something on the altar or taking something off of the altar, he's acting as a representative of God's holiness and he has to be ceremonially pure and holy right down to his clothing. Then, when he's ready when the ashes are off, then he changes, takes the ashes, takes them outside the camp to a clean place, to a particular place, a place that's been designated, and that's where the ashes are stored because the ashes are the remains of the sacrifice, and the sacrifice represents the very means by which people have an encounter with the God that they're worshiping, this holy God. So everything in this is carefully constructed to preserve in their minds the distinction between you have things that are holy, you have everything else. Things that are holy, everything else. And those two can't mix at will. There have to be specific interactions that take place to keep those categories from mixing. That's why God's gonna be so insistent throughout Leviticus on separating things. Not because God thinks you're morally evil if you wear a garment made of two different types of threads, But because in Israel, that was just another way of ingraining in them the concept of separate, different, holy, and regular. So these concepts are all being taught, and they're being taught at a subtle level, but it's a visual depiction. And the priests would do it every day, every day, morning and evening. They would see this taking place, and the people would be learning the entire time. Verse 12, the fire on the altar must be kept burning. Second time he said that. It must not go out. Every morning the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. Third time he said it. So if something's repeated twice, it's important. If it's repeated three times, it's super important. So three times God said, this fire must not go out. Why? Because when, when, when this gets set in place, when the priests get anointed, and we get to chapter 9 and chapter 10, the offerings are going to be given, everything's going to be put in place, and fire from heaven is going to come down and ignite the sacrifices. That is the fire that they're going to keep burning. It's God's fire. It's, it's divine fire. It's not fire that the priests kindled. This is going to be the actual tangible presence of God who rains down fire from heaven supernaturally, or if you think naturally, maybe it was a lightning strike, whatever, the timing is supernatural at least. Regardless, the fire is going to come from God himself. That's the fire that's going to be guarded because that fire is God's presence, symbolically, powerfully, theologically symbolic. That's what's gonna be kept burning. And the burnt offering every morning and every night is going to fuel that fire. And it's going to be the priest's job to make sure that that fire continues burning. If you've ever seen the Olympic ceremony, you understand this concept. They light the Olympic fire and then they run it from the city that hosted the Olympics all the way all over the world and everywhere to the next city that's gonna, and it's a really bad thing if that fire goes out. That's kind of the thing, that, that's kind of the symbolism going on here. If you've been to DC, the, the eternal flame that burns in Arlington Cemetery. Cemetery. <laughs> that's, um, that's the same kind of thing, same kind of symbolism. Alright? So now, that's for the burnt offering. And then verse 14. These are the regulations for the grain offering. The grain offering is the non-animal. This is the bread offering. This is the bread that goes with the meal that the burnt offering represents to God. So this is is the part where they give a portion and then the priests eat the rest. Aaron's sons are to bring it before the Lord in front of the altar. The priest is to take a handful of fine flour and oil together with all the incense on the grain offering and burn the memorial portion on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Aaron and his sons shall eat the rest of it, but it's to be eaten without yeast in a holy place. They are to share the offerings made by fire, made to me by fire. Like the sin offering and the guilt offering, it is most holy. Any male descendant of Aaron may eat it. It is his regular share of the offerings made to the Lord by fire for the generations to come. Whatever touches them will become holy. Now there should be a footnote in your translation there. So this can be saying that anything that touches them, let's say this is the holy portion that's been offered on the altar. Right? And this this is, we've offered, this is how you do it. This is the, the grain offering. I'm the priest, I take a portion of the grain offering, I burn it on the fire, then the rest of the grain offering, I eat and share with the other priests. What this is saying is either saying that anything that touches this will be holy, so by the priest eating of this offering, they maintain their holiness by God. Or it can be saying, whoever eats of this must be holy. In other words, anybody who wants to eat of any of the priests must be clean and ritually pure and have done all the things Leviticus commands. Both both translations can work. And contextually, it's sort of a toss-up. It can be either, it can be or. So you'd have to look in the commentaries and see which you prefer, but there's meaning regardless. If it means that anybody that eats it becomes holy, then it's showing that God's holiness can be transmitted through offerings that have been given to people and that there's something that actually takes place that preserves and extends his holiness in this sanctuary. If it means anyone who touches it will be holy, then it's saying that the priests above all people have to make sure that they are following the, the rituals or else there will be severe consequences if they try to lazily or half-heartedly, or even in ignorance approach and, and take up of these offerings that have been given to God. Because things that have been devoted to God carry weight and significance, and God will not be locked. So not every one of you should be teachers, my brothers. Those of us who teach will be held to a higher standard, according to James. In other words, the priests have a higher responsibility. I lean towards that approach, but I know that the other is just as viable from a hebrew and a theological standpoint so it can be either or and that's where you and your own study and reading can decide but then he goes on to say verse 19 the lord said to moses this is the offering aaron and his sons are to bring to the lord on the day he's anointed the tenth of an ephah of fine flour is a regular grain offering half of it in the morning half of it in the evening prepare it with oil and a griddle. bring it well mixed and present the grain offering broken in pieces as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Some see a hint of the communion, Passover, last supper, there bread broken in pieces presented to the Lord. Jesus, this is my body broken for you. The son who is to succeed him as anointed priest shall prepare it. It's the Lord's regular and is to be burned completely. Every grain offering a priest shall be burned completely and must not be eaten. So this is talking about when the when priests are anointed, when they're consecrated, when they begin their, their service, it will be... Accompanied by a grain offering as well. So two offerings, burnt offering, grain offering, God's giving priests extra instructions. Third one, the sin offering or the purification offering. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron and his sons, these are the regulations or the Torah for the sin offering. The sin offering is to be slaughtered before the Lord in the place the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is most holy. The priest who offers it shall eat it, It's to be eaten in a holy place, in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy, or like we just said, must be holy. If any of the blood is spotted on garment, you must wash it in a holy place. The clay pot the meat is cooked in must be broken. If it's cooked in a bronze pot, the pot's to be scoured or rinsed with water. Any male in a priest's family may eat it, it is most holy but any sin offering whose blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place, that's the sin offering on behalf of the high priest or the sin offering on behalf of the entire congregation. Remember those are the ones where the blood was brought inside the actual tabernacle and put on the altar. Uh, Any of those must not be eaten, it must be burned. So again, regulations for the priest. This is how you're gonna do it. Remember to keep these guidelines in place as you're delineating between these sacrifices. Chapter seven, the guilt offering. This are the regulations for the guilt offering, which is most holy. The guilt offering is to be slaughtered in the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered, and its blood is to be sprinkled against the altar on all sides. All its fat should be offered, the fat tail, the fat covers the inner parts, both kidneys, with the fat on the inner the covering of the liver, which is to be removed with the kidneys. We went over this a couple of weeks ago, so this is again he's just reminding them which offering is which. The priest shall burn them on the altar, as an, altar, altar, as an offering made to fire, Made to the lord by fire it is a guilt offering any male in a priest's family may eat it but it must be eaten in a holy place it is most holy the same law applies both to both the sin offering and the guilt offering they belong to the priest who makes atonement with them the priest who offers a burnt offering for anyone may keep a tithe for himself it's actually a pretty good thing eyes were valuable in the world and again this is how those who are herdsmen who don't have livestock would get the hides that they would use for making their tents, for making their garments, for all sorts of things that hides are used for. Uh, verse 9, Every grain offering baked in an oven, or cooked in a pan, or griddle box, and the priest offers it, and every grain offering, whether it makes oil or dry, belongs equally to all the sons of Aaron. So again, this is building in for the priest. This is telling the priest, this is how you're going to subsist. This is how you're going to live this is how i god am going to provide for you as you teach lead and um, minister to my people so this is reassuring for the priests that they're hearing this and the people are hearing this as well because it's being written down so everyone is on the same page everyone knows this is the deal this is how the economy of god works in covenant israel so then the last one we come to the fellowship offering these are the regulations for the fellowship offering the person may present to the lord remember fellowship offerings were voluntary they could be if you just wanted to show thankfulness if you fulfilled a vow and you wanted to celebrate it or if you um, if you just wanted to give a free will offering to god to show your devotion or your allegiance so these are the regulations for how that'll work if he offers it as an expression of thankfulness then along with his thank offering he's to offer cakes of bread made without yeast and mixed with oil wafers made without yeast and spread with oil, and cakes of fine flour well kneaded and mixed with oil. So it's gonna be bread because it's a meal. Along with this fellowship offering at Thanksgiving, he's to present an offering of cakes of bread made with yeast. this This is to show that this is a celebratory meal because yeast was not to be used on the altar. This is not for sacrifice and atonement. This is for bread for this meal that we're all going to share together, including the priests, and bread with yeast tastes good. And that's why most bread is made with yeast and it's significant when it's not made with yeast for the sacrifices. So he's to bring one of each kind as an offering, a contribution to the Lord. It belongs to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the fellowship offerings. The meat of his fellowship offering of thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it's offered. You must leave none till morning. Don't waste any. Bring what you need. Bring what is just for this uh, size gathering, this size celebration if however his offering is a result of a vow or it's a free will offering the sacrifice shall be eaten on the day he offers it With anything left over it may be eaten on the next day any meat of the sacrifice left over till the third day though must be burned up any meat of the fellowship offering is eaten on the third day it will not be accepted it will not be credited to the one who offered it for its impure the person who eats of it will be held responsible don't leave meat that's been cooked laying around for three days that's just basic <laughs> Go in the kitchen, they'll tell you that. Another thing is like three minutes or I don't know, whatever. But what God's saying through this, there's some hygiene reasons, there's some health reasons in this. And he's also, is this is not for them to store up food. This is not for them to just always have this supply of food around that The priest can gorge themselves on and and just be used to having people coming and feed. No, they bring the offerings, the offerings for a purpose. When you eat the meal together, it's for a purpose. Once that purpose is over, then the meal and the offering and the event is over. And and there's a finish to it, there's a completion to it. So then he goes on and says, uh, meat that touches anything ceremonially unclean must not be eaten, it must be burned up. As for other meat, anyone ceremonially clean may eat it. But If anyone who is unclean eats any of the meat or fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, the person must be cut off from his people anyone touches something unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean detestable thing, and Leviticus will tell us in much detail what those consist of later coming chapters, Uh, it must be cut off from among the people. Uh, Excuse me, if they eat any unclean thing and then eats of the meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people. So what God's saying in this is all of this stuff has to take place within the realm of cleanliness, and not cleanliness like free from dirt, ceremonially cleanliness, free from the things that God is going to tell them later can defile, because it's a theological lesson, not just a hygiene lesson. God wants them to be in a state of ritual purity, and there are going to be things that we find out you can do on a regular basis that are not wrong at all but they will make you ritually impure for the day. And so then you'll have to bathe and then you're impure until evening. I mean, normal things, normal bodily things. So it's not a moral judgment, the impure or pure. it's a ritual category. And what God's saying is there are some things that will preclude you from participating in this daily ritual. And that's okay because I've made ways for you to cleanse yourself and then return after you cleanse. So it's not an all things lost, but it's important That you not do this ritual emptily or do it haphazardly or do it without care or concern. Because what it's symbolizing, what all of these sacrifices are symbolizing is my desire to live as a holy God among people who are common and normal and thus infected by the realm of sin which has spread all over the world at this point in history. So that's what God's doing, and we're out of time right now. We've almost made it through both chapters. There's a little section to go from chapter 7 to we'll pick up next week, and then there's going to be the actual ordination. The priests are given their instructions, then they're going to be ordained, consecrated. Then God's going to show up, and it's going to be amazing. And then it's going to be horrible because they don't listen to what we've just been reading for the past five or six weeks. But we're out of time. So if you want seconds, they're here. Um, Go back to work. Have a great day. And we'll see you next week. Thanks.